Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions of mass death and suicide. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. August 15, 1984. A calm day in a West African village in Cameroon. 53-year-old Abdul Nkanyaone biked towards town. Along the way, he noticed a truck parked in the middle of the road. The vehicle had been turned off, and the driver's seat was empty. As Abdu drew closer, he fought off a wave of nerves, and then he saw him. A beloved and well-known priest from the village was lying on the ground near the truck, dead. Abdu couldn't comprehend why anyone would want to harm the holy man. Desperate for help, he rushed onward toward the village. But he slowed, despairing as he noticed another dead motorist on the road. Whatever happened, the priest wasn't the only victim. Abdu pushed forward up the hill, hoping the village would bring answers. He passed dead livestock and even more bodies. By the time he finally laid eyes on another living person, he was too disoriented to even speak. Abdu nearly passed out himself. When he regained his senses, he discovered 37 people in the village had dropped dead for reasons nobody understood yet. They certainly didn't know that two years later, a similar tragedy would strike another lake town. One that would kill almost 50 times as many people. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This episode, we're examining the Lake Nias incident of 1986, in which roughly 1,800 people and thousands of animals were killed in a single evening. Today, we'll cover the lead-up to the disaster and the day of the tragedy. Then, we'll explore the many possible explanations for the deadly event, including natural phenomena, supernatural powers, and a secret U.S. weapons test. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Moneymaker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. 
with more than 88 million in prizes, ranging from 50 to $500. Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. On August 15, 1984, villages near Lake Manoon in northwestern Cameroon awoke to the smell of rotten eggs. The stench permeated the air, accented by the smell of decaying flesh. As villagers left their homes that morning, they realized their situation was more serious than a bad odor. 37 people and their livestock had died overnight. Their bodies offered few clues as to what happened. Some of the victims had scars on their cheeks and appendages. But there was little else to go on. In the days after, the survivors mourned their friends, family members, and neighbors. Farming and cattle grazing had to be put on the back burner. People feared the remaining livestock and crops may have been poisoned by whatever killed the villagers. The deceased were quarantined to keep the survivors safe from whatever had swept through the village. And then, life moved on. Back in the country's capital, Yaoundé, the mass death received little attention. 37 poor rural workers died. It was a tragedy, true, but hardly a top priority, given the past couple years the country had faced. Market shifts in the mid-1980s forced Cameroon into a 10-year recession. During that period, the GDP sank by 60%, and the currency was undervalued by 50%. Layoffs were rampant, poverty rose, and many buildings and roads fell into disrepair. The deaths of 37 people in the farmland seem like an inevitability of life in Cameroon. And so, the government tried to move on, as if everything was normal. The approach worked. Until it didn't. Two years later, and just 60 miles away, history repeated itself on a much larger scale. A local priest named Father Anthony was at the Nias village on August 21, 1986. Nias is one of many small communities surrounding Lake Nias, a 700-foot-deep crater lake in northwestern Cameroon. Father Anthony, like many others, planned to attend that day's village market. Market days were sort of like a farmer's market, a once-a-week gathering where locals bought and sold goods with one another. More importantly, the days were an opportunity for people to come together. Cameroon boasted over 200 ethnic groups and an almost equal number of languages, including English, French, and several Bantu languages. Villagers practiced everything from Catholicism and Islam to animism, the belief that all objects and beings possess some sort of spiritual power. 
These people didn't have much in common, but they could all share their market days. After a long day of socializing, Father Anthony went to sleep in the local mission compound by Lake Nias. Around the same time, Ephraim Che, a Nias local, heard large boulders crashing and tumbling over concrete. The sounds seemed to never end. Some distance away, another Nias resident named Halima Sule heard booming voices all speaking at once, the echoes ringing through the village. As Halima slowly made her way to her front door, she braced herself. Peering out a thin crack, she could see a thick white blanket hovering over Lake Nias. But before she could give it another thought, she grew dizzy. She hit the floor with a vicious crack and passed out. Back at his home, Ephraim felt ill too. After spotting the same white cloud drifting over Lake Nias, he felt a sudden wave of inexplicable sickness. He trudged back to his bed, perhaps hoping to sleep off the illness. The next morning, Halima and Ephraim both awoke to chaos. Ephraim discovered the once crystal blue lake had turned a rusty shade of red. Before he could inspect the water more closely, a chilling sound tore through the air, Halima's scream. Ephraim ran toward the sound and found Halima in a panic. She was surrounded by bodies. 35 members of her extended family, including her father and four children. All were dead. It was too late for Ephraim to do anything to help. He ran back through the streets, only to find that what happened to Halima's family wasn't an isolated case. Almost everyone in the area had died while he slept. Ephraim feared he was witnessing the end of the world. As tears streamed down his cheeks, Ephraim checked on his own family. They hadn't been spared from the tragedy either. Everyone was gone. As Ephraim grappled with this horrifying new reality, Father Anthony awakened, finding himself lying on the dirt ground. He was completely shocked. He'd fallen asleep on a bed. Even stranger, his companion lay in a slump a few feet away from him. Fighting dizziness, Father Anthony rose to his feet, and dread overcame him. His friend was dead, just like so many others. Overnight, roughly 1,800 people and thousands of cows died across the villages surrounding Lake Nias. The wave of death was swift and brutal, like something out of a biblical tale. Father Anthony believed the best way he could help was through his faith. He invited his fellow survivors to carry the dead inside. Once out of the hot sun, he offered to give the victims a Christian burial. The priest wanted to seal each person in a shroud, pray with the mourners, then bury the deceased on consecrated ground. And that's what he tried to do. But there were too many bodies for everyone to have their own ceremony. It would take too long. Plus, not everyone wanted a Christian burial. The dead had come from countless local communities with varying religious traditions. Many survivors wanted to honor their lost loved ones with their own practices. So eventually, Father Anthony adjusted his methods. 
there were other ways to help that didn't infringe on people's religious beliefs. He and other locals searched for survivors and tended to the dead. They were the only people doing this work because it took over a day for first responders to reach the affected areas. And they didn't bring much relief. Many were terrified to enter the small towns, fearing that whatever killed all those people might get them too. Meanwhile, circumstances became even more dire in the villages. Several survivors desperately needed medical attention, and the nearest hospital was around 20 miles away from the main village in a small town called Womb. Even with the efforts of Father Anthony and the others, corpses littered the ground. Many of the living were in such a state of shock, they couldn't do anything but sit in a catatonic state. Some died by suicide. But as people slowly picked up the pieces and resumed their lives, one question loomed large. How could such a devastating tragedy happen? Who or what was to blame? Coming up, the survivors try to identify a culprit. What could be more shocking than uncovering the dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Molly from the Parkhead series Conspiracy Theories. Each week, we take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction, revealing that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. The rise and fall of J. Edgar Hoover, 75 years of Roswell, the tragic death of Princess Diana. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may be just outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. On the night of August 21st, 1986, approximately 1,800 people dropped dead in the villages surrounding Lake Nias. Nobody understood how or why. For almost two days, survivors waited for help. They had no idea it was just outside their reach. Rescue workers were debating whether it was safe to enter the communities. Eventually, a Catholic priest named Father Tenhorn took the risk and ventured into Nias. On August 23, 1986, he joined several volunteers from nearby villages, going hut to hut, searching for signs of life. He found a small handful of survivors sitting around in a grief-stricken daze. He knew no words of comfort would ever suffice, so instead... He took action. Many of the bodies were rotting in the sun, and the rescuers worried about the threat of airborne diseases. Father Tanhorn started to organize a mass burial, but he was met with the same backlash as Father Anthony. Many worried this was disrespectful to the dead. Father Tanhorn explained to all the objectors that time and safety were of the essence. If they didn't act, the decomposing bodies could spread disease. 
Ultimately, the survivors and first responders buried the bodies en masse. By this point, the army was on the scene, just in time to load their trucks with survivors and move them out of the danger zone. At the hospital in Womb, patients were admitted for symptoms ranging from pneumonia and other respiratory issues, skin lacerations and lesions, and muscle necrosis. Several died in the facility, and many women suffered stillbirths or miscarriages in the days and weeks following the event. Meanwhile, the Cameroonian government transported the healthy survivors to temporary resettlement camps in neighboring villages. These living arrangements offered respite from the horrors of Nias, but it didn't last long. The diverse communities from around the lake were now crowded into tiny refugee camps with minimal resources. Potable water was scarce, and the flimsy huts offered little reprieve from the rain. Tensions ran high, and neighbors turned on one another. To make matters worse, the locals distrusted the refugees, often threatening the newcomers and making them feel unwelcome. There were few opportunities for the survivors to build a new life for themselves. Most were farmers, now displaced from their land. To add insult to injury, so much livestock had been lost during the disaster, the price of meat skyrocketed. Many survivors couldn't afford to buy enough to feed their families. Naturally, there were those who wondered how they'd ended up in this situation. Wild rumors spread about what really happened on that fateful day when 1,800 of their neighbors had dropped dead. Given the government's botched response to the disaster, some suspected local officials had a hand in the tragedy. Given the ongoing political instability, they wondered if President Paul Bia had used chemical warfare as a scare tactic or to intimidate his harshest critics. The first modern chemical weapons were used in World War I. Since then, millions have gotten sick or died after exposure to mustard gas, hydrogen cyanide, tear gas, and Agent Orange. But at the time, Cameroon was trying to gain credibility on the international stage, and using a chemical agent on its own civilians wouldn't have been a good look. Especially because the use of such a weapon would violate the Geneva Protocol of 1925, which technically outlawed the use of chemical agents. Cameroon didn't technically accept the Geneva Protocols until 1989, after the Lake Nias incident. But even though they weren't strictly bound by the terms, they may have felt they needed to adhere anyway. Violating the terms could draw international scrutiny. But the Geneva Protocol didn't prevent the production or possession of chemical weapons. It only limited their use. And even the countries that agreed to its terms occasionally broke the treaty to suit their needs. Shortly before World War II broke out, Italy, a signatory nation, used chemical weapons in Ethiopia. Decades later, during the Vietnam War, the United States drew criticism for the herbicides and tear gas their military deployed. The U.S. defended itself, arguing the specific compounds used weren't covered by the Geneva Protocol. The claims sparked a heated controversy. 
This was one of many instances where superpowers exploited loopholes to get around the restriction without explicitly violating the treaty. It happened again in 1970, when American officials suggested their armed forces were still allowed to use so-called riot control agents. As you can imagine, this claim was highly controversial. And the argument spurred a 1975 revision banning the use of chemical weapons in all but a handful of highly specific situations. By the time of the Lake Nias incident, Cameroon's government might have compellingly argued that they had the right to dose their own citizens with a biological agent. But it would have been a tough case to make. It certainly didn't make sense for President Bia to further complicate an already challenging political situation by murdering his own people on such a large scale. But one country has historically benefited from political instability in other nations. The United States. After the Lake Nias disaster, whispers spread that the deaths might have been the result of a secret American bomb test. Perhaps the superpower was testing a brand new and catastrophic superweapon. It wouldn't be the first time. Between 1945 and 1992, the U.S. conducted over 1,000 nuclear weapons tests. Even though these studies never officially happened in Africa, it seemed possible the U.S. could secretly use their arsenal in Cameroon. After all, for over a decade in the 1940s and 50s, the states conducted nuclear weapons tests in the Pacific Ocean's Marshall Islands. The regular blasts exposed the islanders to fallout, enough that some local populations later reported cancer rates at double the global average. Beyond that, the islands are still blanketed in a haze of radiation today, over 60 years after the last explosion. Nuclear waste is buried in spots that are threatened by climate change, and rising sea levels could sweep the toxins into our oceans in the near future. After the Marshall Island tests concluded, the Nuclear Claims Tribunal awarded the island nation $2 billion in damages to be paid by the United States. However, U.S. congressional testimony suggests America only paid $4 million of that amount. Today, they're still under public pressure to help clean up the ambient radiation and monitor the stored nuclear waste. Best case scenario? The U.S. learned its lesson, and it would have been unlikely for them to conduct any more international nuclear weapons tests. Worst case scenario, they only learned to be more careful and ensure nobody learned about clandestine experiments, one of which may have occurred in 1986 in Lake Nias. Except there was no physical evidence of a bomb in any of the affected villages. When a nuclear weapon detonates, buildings, cars, and people at ground zero are completely obliterated. Farther away, people can be knocked down or blown several feet through the air. But the deceased at Nias looked like they dropped dead wherever they were standing or sleeping. Nobody had been pushed or swept away, and their corpses didn't bear the burn marks common to radiation poisoning. 
Oddly, many survivors had inexplicable lesions and signs of severe inflammation. These injuries covered their entire bodies, sometimes causing long-term scarring. No buildings or vehicles were moved or destroyed. No large crater was left behind from a blast. The evidence simply didn't fit an atomic weapons test. With this possibility ruled out, the community rumors soon turned to what seemed the most obvious explanation, the supernatural. Coming up, local legends illuminate a scientific truth about Nias. Now back to the story. In Cameroon, many local legends discuss good lakes, bad lakes, and exploding lakes. This seemed relevant to the investigation into Lake Nias, especially after various locals told researchers about a spring that feeds the lake. It has magical properties that kill small animals that try to drink from it. Across the African continent, many blame temperamental water on the Mamiwata, a water spirit renowned for both her beauty and her temper. She's a blend of a woman and a mermaid who offers maternal protection to the deserving. She rewards her followers with riches, wisdom, and strength. But should someone disrupt, pollute, or disrespect her home, she lures them into the murky depths and uses the victim as entertainment. Mamiwata is quick to anger and incredibly jealous of those who don't give her as much attention as she'd like. Perhaps, when she's angry enough, she could make a lake explode. Mamiwata is just one dangerous water spirit from Cameroonian mythology. There are too many stories and legends about crater lakes to list them all, but if you were to study them, you might notice a pattern. In much of the lore, the waters are described as angry, vengeful, and dangerous. And this isn't the only potentially supernatural factor in the Lake Nias incident. Supposedly, a well-reputed local healer predicted the explosion. Reports suggest the healer saw a plant turn red and took it as an omen that an explosion was coming. Researchers thought there was another explanation for the incident, something less supernatural and more rooted in science. They interviewed physicians who treated the survivors, tested the water from the lake, and took countless witness statements. Perhaps some observable and measurable factor made Lake Nias surprisingly deadly. Many bodies of water around the world are known to be dangerous, but their risks can almost always be attributed to natural phenomena or human activity. For example, Horseshoe Lake in the Sierra Nevadas is surrounded by gorgeous mountains carpeted in leafy plants and trees. But its soil is packed with carbon dioxide and hydrogen sulfide, thanks to underground volcanic networks that spew toxic gases from below. When the ground shifts due to tectonic activity, these heavier-than-air compounds are released, then pool in shallow dips and basins. Anyone unfortunate enough to be in the wrong place at the wrong time can choke to death on the poisoned air. 
or take Onondaga Lake in New York, which has been called the most polluted lake in the United States. Its banks and bed accumulate toxins like mercury, which can be deadly if swallowed by a swimmer. Both of these lakes present a very real danger, but neither caused a tragedy on par with Lake Nias. Nias stands as one of over 30 volcanic crater lakes within Cameroon's borders. Lake Manoon, where 37 people died in circumstances very similar to the Lake Nias disaster, lies along the same volcanic network. This led many to suspect a tectonic shift was responsible for both tragedies. Professor George Kling from the University of Michigan tried to uncover what could have happened at the site of the 1986 incident. As soon as he arrived in Nias, he noted that prior to the disaster, the cliff sides had been covered with beautiful green moss and vegetation. But now, the rocks were a graveyard of gray. It was like the entire mountainside had been wiped clean. Scientists believe the best explanation for this kind of damage was a tidal wave measuring at least 300 feet tall. And in their minds, the only way such a tidal wave would have formed was if a volcano erupted. To learn more, Professor Kling collected water samples from the very bottom of Lake Nias. He checked the temperature, sulfur levels, and lake bed disruption. The results suggested there was no volcanic eruption. But with the puzzling samples still in mind, Kling and a colleague explored a new possibility. They wondered if the water contained large amounts of carbon dioxide, which had rested beneath the lake's placid surface. It was an unusual hypothesis, initially formed by the Icelandic volcanologist Haraldur Sigurdsson after the disaster at Lake Manoon two years earlier. This isn't an unknown phenomenon. Several natural water springs exist where carbon dioxide makes the water fizzy like a carbonated drink. Sigurdsson previously suggested carbon dioxide had been seeping into the lake for years, possibly centuries. The gas had slowly dissolved into the water, which was so heavy it held the compound beneath the surface, preventing its escape. That is, until some kind of catalyst churned the liquid. The right factors could make the lake essentially explode, like a shaken bottle of soda. Sigurdsson called this phenomenon Lake Overturn, a theory that's now been widely accepted by the scientific community. A carbon dioxide release may not sound particularly dangerous. After all, we exhale CO2 with every breath we take. But usually, the gas isn't heavily concentrated. The average occupied room can have up to 1,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide. But when the compound forms a dense cloud, it can be dangerous. People exposed to the heavily concentrated gas may experience drowsiness, headaches, nausea, or sudden death, just like the people in Nias and Manoon. Finally, with a working theory, the survivors had a rational explanation for the tragedies. But that doesn't mean the legends about the water spirits and vengeful waters were wrong. There's always some truth in fiction, and myth and folklore can have their roots in something real. For example, 
Nias locals told a story about a nearby babbling brook that small creatures wouldn't go near, let alone drink from. If they attempted to sip from the stream, they'd die. Scientists decided to look into this infamously deadly stream to see how true the account was. As they edged closer to the banks, they noticed the brook wasn't exactly babbling. It was bubbling. It was immediately clear this creek contained massive amounts of carbon dioxide. And what's more, there were likely similar springs beneath Nias, which had been feeding the lake for centuries. So scientists understood how the carbon dioxide ended up in the water, and they soon learned what led to its release. They found massive abrasions and cracks on the cliffs overlooking the basin, suggesting a massive landslide. The survivors, who claimed to hear a loud rumbling before they passed out, may have been listening to the rocks crashing through the surface of the lake. The boulders stirred the waters until the carbon dioxide shot toward the surface. The moment it hit the air, it turned into a white mist that likely smelled of sulfur, gunpowder, and rotten eggs, just like the survivors reported. Because carbon dioxide is heavier than air, it didn't disperse into the atmosphere. Instead, it sank and spread across the surrounding villages. In Nias alone, nearly 800 people died of carbon dioxide asphyxiation. Only six survived. Scientists believe the question of who lived and who died came down to where the people were at the time of the incident. Those at lower elevations, where the dangerous gas could easily travel, didn't stand a chance. Now that they understood how the victims died, policymakers began the hard work of making sure this would never happen again. Some suggested they should immediately build a degassing network by essentially taking a very large pipe and running it to the bed of the crater lake. It would allow the gas to escape through the tube rather than accumulate to deadly proportions underwater. However, Nias's degassing network wasn't completed until 2001, about 15 years after the explosion. And there were, and still are, concerns the network is cheaply and unsustainably made. Even in light of these risks, the displaced survivors desperately want to move back to their home, Nias Village. But sadly, they may not have a home to return to. The Cameroonian government proposed construction of a new settlement, a safe distance from Lake Nias, where the survivors could live permanently. They claimed they'd build schools, places of worship, better roads, and healthcare facilities. To this day, many of those vows haven't been fulfilled. And while the former residents of Lake Nias grapple with these broken promises, officials all over the world have another challenge, predicting whether a similar tragedy might strike elsewhere. The Democratic Republic of the Congo's Lake Kivu sits atop 300 cubic kilometers of carbon dioxide and 60 cubic kilometers of methane. If it overturns, it could kill millions of people. Because the lake is so massive, scientists believe it would take a massive amount of energy to churn it enough to trigger a release significantly more than a rock slide. Nevertheless, 
Engineering companies have contracts to pump carbon dioxide from Lake Kivu. These are expensive. One contract costs the equivalent of five million U.S. dollars. But that's a small price to pay when countless human lives are on the line. So perhaps this is the true legacy of Lake Nias and Lake Manun. The tragedies killed many, and the humanitarian crisis that followed continues to this day. While nothing can undo the pain and the heartache of the 1986 tragedy, at the very least, we might have learned enough to avoid repeating history. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on Lake Nias, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Smithsonian Magazine's article "Diffusing Africa's Killer Lakes" by Kevin Krychik extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take "we don't know" for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Sierra Lawson, edited by Amber Hurley and Angela Jorgensen. Fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Travis Clark. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. <laughs>